Good morning. We are glad that you are joining with us again this morning. It is Father's Day, and so for all of the fathers, uh, particularly who are um, watching this this morning, we want to celebrate you and um, celebrate what the Lord is doing in your lives and the big responsibilities that you have. Unlike Mother's Day, I feel with you because I have faced being a father too, and there are wonderful things involved along with heavy responsibilities and we're thankful that we have the lord uh, to give us strength to do these things uh, let's uh before we look at the word of god together let's have a word of prayer dearest lord and loving heavenly father we come to you this morning and we want to lift before you this responsibility you've given us we pray lord that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts we know it's only a short passage but lord we pray that you would be moving in our lives. Lord, I come particularly for what you're going to do in my life. May the words of my mouth, meditation of all the hearts of those who are listening and watching be acceptable in your sight because you are our strength and our deliverer. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're in the book of Ephesians again in chapter 6 and we're looking at one verse and it's chapter 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So for Father's Day, I was given this passage, Ephesians chapter 6, as the passage I was to preach. Being the occasionally clever guy, I thought I would do something clever, a clever exercise and ask my children for their help. I began parenting at the age of 23, and I thought back then, that I was a pretty good parent. Oh, and that I knew so much about parenting. Boy, <laughs> that's a laugh. I sent out a messenger note to them asking them for this. Please send me an email speaking of how you believe that I fathered you to provoke you to exasperation and how I caused you by my fathering to be brought up in the training and discipline of the Lord or was gracious to you. Do not be afraid to be strong. Well, what a clever boy I thought I was, until I told my wife about this. Do you know how terribly hard this is going to be for uh, a person to do for their parent? They love you, you know. Are you sure that you're going to want to hear what they have to say? I realize that in the future, this sort of thing should be discussed with your wife before you go ahead and do it. Anyway, I got back answers eventually. And they were not as harsh at all. Uh, they're kind kids who probably have forgotten most of their childhood, I think. My daughter told me that when she was young, it was the Bible, Jesus, or nothing. Her opinions didn't matter. I made her feel like the Bible or Jesus were out of her reach or that he wouldn't understand these feelings either. She doesn't remember much about me. She said, Mom always said, Daddy's at the church. Thankfully, I was able in the second question to see more positive things, such as if what someone is saying isn't backed up by Scripture, it is not something to be absorbed. Being with the body of Christ is just as important as being in the Word. I never doubted that you were madly in love with Jesus and everything comes after that. Those were encouraging things to have her say. My, my girl wrote her stuff out. The boys found it very hard to put this stuff in writing and to articulate. 
and my oldest spoke to me on the phone. Basically, he commiserated with me for being a parent. He found fathering very difficult. While wishing he wasn't known during his younger days as Glenn Bowles' son, especially when he was at Bible college, and wishing he had a chance to do more things in sports, he wanted to be Wayne Gretzky and in school. Now, these responses were hard to do, but I appreciated their efforts so much. So we want to come back to this passage. As we, I have gone through this exercise, challenging and more blessing than I thought it would be, we come to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. From uh, chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul deals with typical relationships, be it marriage, child to parent, parent to child, uh, slaves to masters, or in our modern day parlance, uh, employees and employers. What I love about the Apostle Paul is that he grounds relationships in a robust theology. His discussion about relationships always comes with the background of chapters 1 to 3. There he speaks of a life that has made, been made alive by the grace of God alone, united with all who are in Christ. At the start of chapter 4, he starts to apply this to a believer's life. And let me sort of point out several things uh, as I go through here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of Christ, of God, excuse me, as beloved children, and walk in love as God loved you and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that is from Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, 31 and 32, and 5, verses 1 and 2, and verse 21. All of this, of course, is based upon the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, making us more and more like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here we have in this verse, Ephesians 6, verse 4, directed towards fathers, coming out of this understanding of how we are to live because of the grace of God given to us. So that's what this, this verse is talking to us about. So this verse is only for dads though, right? It's only for dads. Everybody else can sort of turn off the switch. It is Father's Day. I get to sort of pump up my dad and everybody else can ignore it. Well, several commentators take this word dads or fathers and they say it applies to both mothers and fathers. And to some extent, I agree. It's kind of like when you see brethren uh, in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is talking about both the brothers and the sisters. So there's some of that. In the society in which Paul was speaking to, though, it was far more difficult to do that broadening. Was it possible? Yes. But only as the mother worked as the associate or deputy of the father. You see... The father held all of the power in the family. The father was the one who had the power of life or death over the entire nuclear family. A father could sell his children into slavery, expose them to death, and he was certainly in total charge of the upbringing and discipline and training of the child. 
He could, in effect, do what he wanted to the child if it fit his desires or even his whims. In our day, because of broken families and because of the struggles that some fathers have, mothers have an increasing role in the lives of their children, and they have, to, they have a need to take on the care of their offspring, which may offer a, warrant, a challenge to them because of the fact that they have to be both mother and father. Now, so that's for mothers. Maybe you don't have children and you never will have children. Now, the, menace, the, min, the, excuse me, the mentoring ministry of men like Paul, Elijah, and Elisha were so important that their protégés often saw them as fathers. Paul ministered into the life of Timothy in such a way that in the first verses of 1 and 2 Timothy, he calls Timothy his true son, he calls Timothy his beloved son. So this surrogacy of an adult to a child, of men to men, women to women, older to younger, is a vital scriptural concept. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's not only concerns children as such and young people, and not only parents who have children, but this is a subject that belongs and applies to all. So in, in case you think you're getting out of being talked to this morning, uh, don't think that. This is for you as well. In the end, we will see not only how a father who was graciously made anew to act and live, we will see how our Heavenly Father acts and lives and how He cares for us. So let us turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, as we already have. The passage divides very nicely into two points. If you had been following along in recent days and uh, you heard um, Kent or pastor preach in, for instance, Ephesians chapter 5, you will notice there is <clears throat> this way of working things where the negative said, and then there's a positive, and then there's a but in the middle. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, take no, take no part in the unfruitful works of righteousness. Negative. But, then there's a positive. Instead, expose them. He points out a negative and turns to the positive again and again. This is a tried and true teaching style. And he's using it again here in order to teach a very important concept. So the first thing we want to learn is, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The number of ways that one can say what Paul is challenging here is amazing. As I look through uh, different versions, I found things like exasperate, uh, irritate, especially in French, uh, be hard on, keep on scolding and nagging, coming down hard, provoke. My mind went to a program that I like to watch, a reality program called The Amazing Dr. Paul. It follows a large animal veterinary service. Large animals like cattle, they have a mind of their own. In order to get a head of cattle to go into a closing chute, one has to sometimes prod them with a stick or with a cattle prod. The poke or the shock generally motivates the animal to go into the narrow chute for the treatment that is needed, or at least the vet thinks it's needed. On occasion, the animal has had enough and it bucks and will occasionally jump out of the runway over the gate by the chute with its legs catching on the side of the fence and falling over on its head, 
all in order not to go where the human is directing. They're bugged. They're irritated. And it's funny watching them flee. Now, along with the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, there's a parallel passage found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. And it points to another effect. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The problem that many children face is that their fathers provoke them so that they are discouraged. Higher than appropriate expectations, living one's life vicarious through your child, not recognizing that children can be immature, which is not necessarily wrong behavior. How do you feel when your child spills milk? Do you think they're trying to make a mess? Or is it because the jug is too heavy? Or because at the age of 11, Johnny's arms and legs aren't quite uh, controllable, aren't quite coordinated, and they knock over the glass without meaning to? Is it overprotection? Favoritism? Like David treated Absalom with neglect? Or is it downright physical or emotional or mental cruelty, not recognizing the growth toward maturity that a child must do? Or the challenge of this different person having different attitudes and views toward life. There, C.S. Lewis shares a scenario that is a sure provoker of thinking. And he says this in The Four Loves. Who has not been embarrassed at a family meal uh, when you go as a guest? where the father or mother treat the grown-up offspring with an incivility which offered to any other young people would have simply terminated the acquaintance. Dramatic assertions on matters that the children understand and their elders don't, ruthless interruptions, flat contradictions, ridicule of the things that the youth take seriously, sometimes of their religion, insulting references to their friends, all provide an easy answer to the questions why are they always out of the house? Why do they like every home better than this home? Who does not prefer civility to barbarism? Another picture in my mind is the picture that I see um, that is written um, in the Christmas Carol. The ghost of Christmas present takes Ebenezer Scrooge back to his old boarding school at the Christmas holidays. Everybody's getting ready to leave and they go out and get ready to go home with their family. Ebenezer, because of the busyness or the lack of interest of, their parents, of his parents, is left at the school. He sits by himself in the room where he takes his education. Now, sometimes I've seen it funny where you watch at uh, Muppet Christmas Carol and uh, he is sitting there with um, the American Eagle being taught his lessons, but it's not so funny. It's hard. One of my favorite preachers, John Piper, talks about this when he talks about Ephesians 6, verse 4. And, and he says, I built the whole message of the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, around the conviction that the father causes the child's soul to shrivel into a small, hard, angry shell. 
as the child is frustrated, the tender heart that children have becomes more and more defensive until it's almost like an armadillo, which, when it is threatened, turns itself almost instantaneously into a bowling ball, a bowling ball-looking sphere, which is almost impossible to penetrate. Sadly, it's often true that the child does not far, fall far from the tree, and the heart of the father is a hardened shell as well. So the old song says, nothing comes of nothing, nothing ever can. And this is true, seemingly, in this case. So you have the hurt, shocked, angry, shriveled, hardened shell of the child who is provoked by the father who has functioned in this way or those who are functioning in a father's place or a parent's place. I do love the fact, though, that the scripture always has an antidote for this small, hard, shriveled, angry shell that can be so easily developed in the heart of a child. I've mentioned this passage before, but let's take a look at it again and point out some things that are in it. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 and 2, 31, 32, 5, 1 and 2, and then verse 21. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Having a heart of humility towards children. Gentleness. Being careful how you function. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. That is hard for a parent to do. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that was Ephesians, 1, pardon me, Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, 31 and 32, 5, 1 and 2, and verse 21. God's done all those things and more for us perfectly. He is patient when we deserve only instant punishment in hell. He bears with us when he... When we hear for the umpteenth time what he expects and we do otherwise, he is unfailingly kind. He has forgiven us as far as the east is from the west. As Pastor said a few weeks ago, he has shown his great leadership in our lives by serving us and giving up his son for us. Oh, to have a father like that. Oh, to be a father like that the blessing we have in the midst of all of our failures. And our kids face them, and their moms are watching and looking on, is that there's forgiveness for us, healing for our kids, and hope that does not make us afraid. <laughs> I'm so thankful I have a God who loves me, loves my kids, loves us enough to be there and to trust despite all the wickedness we all have because as we like to sing here often especially one former worship leader our pastor he is a good good father the second part of this verse is this but bring them up in the discipline 
and instruction of the Lord. King James says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So here we have the answer to on the other hand, to fathers. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but be a multifaceted parent, much like Paul was to his churches. As he cared for the flock in Thessalonica, for instance. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct, our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The call is to be like God himself, as Paul exhibits God to his flock. In the bringing up of children, notice that there's both motherly traits, the nursing, the nurturing, the nourishing mother, and the hardworking, exhorting, encouraging work of a father for the sake of the heavenly father. All of this was so that children would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So you have the motherly traits, the nurturing, the nourishing, the fatherly traits, the exhorting, the encouraging. The last part of verse 4 is saying the challenge to fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, the passage here is calling for an activity that is positive, much like the mother and father rules that Paul alludes to in, second, in 1 Thessalonians. It's a slow, day-by-day -day process, taking into account the all-around maturity levels and spiritual state of the child. This building takes time, and like the children's forts or the young person's programs, sometimes the level of maturity causes some parts of the project to collapse. Like my wife saw sometimes when she was watching Lego Masters. They're building and building and then <clears throat> collapse. One has to expect this and plan for the time to go back and refasten, rework, and to push on. The concept of discipline here is not primarily learning a right way to function with a strict schedule or oft-repeated activity or a demand to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to read certain things or to walk certain ways. It's the idea of nourishing is the main part of this discussion of discipling. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. This speaks of a spiritual nourishment that is needed. Of course, mental stimulation and emotional support and validation will also be necessary. Firmness is not discounted. But it's always carried out in an atmosphere of love, appreciation, and acceptance. In the same way, admonition is given 
in a cocoon of acceptance and love, fitted to the personality of the child. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, For you know how, like the father with his children, we exhort each, other, each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Major part of what we see Paul doing as the parent or father of so many churches is to admonish the people. The best example of this is the gentle final challenge to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I could never think about this passage without thinking of the people close to or in tears, knowing that Paul will not be with them again. And he has an obligation in his heart to leave some comments, to leave a foundation so these people can go on, and to make some challenging things clear so that they can live without him there. He knew that their, these admonitions were coming from him as they saw him for the last time in their earthly lives. This was his way, building up, nourishing the saints, admonishing during and at the end of his ministry. He was an example by his gospel ministry of how to father well and how to see God as the example for good fathering in the lives of people. Fathers? or mothers, or mentors, bringing up their children, bringing up their protégés, it's all the same. The temptation is to provoke them to wrath because we're human. God knows that about us. He knows that about our children. And he knows that we need a good, good father as our example. On this Father's Day, there's a place to go to receive all the strength you need, all the forgiveness you need, all the focus you need to carry out Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's found in our Heavenly Father. As I finish, I want to share with you a fairly lengthy article from David Mathis because I think it helps so much to get into mind what is going on here. It helps us to see the Father and how we relate as fathers ourselves. And we will leave in the comments a, a link to this. David Mathis uh, is from Desiring God Ministries. Not long after God delivered his people from Egypt with his great display of power over Pharaoh, we find Moses realizing how dreadful it would be if God were simply a disciplinarian. His people clearly did not deserve his favor. Even more, they deserved his punishment after making a golden calf to worship in his place. Before Moses could lead these stiff-necked people up from Sinai to the Promised Land, he needed to know what kind of God he was dealing with. Would the holiness of this God soon consume such a wicked and rebellious people, or was there more to his glory than just mere justice and the raw display of power? Was it only a matter of time before his righteous wrath would fall on these disobedient children? In one of the most important passages in all the Bible, Moses asks God, please show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. I'll make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33, verse 19. God 
as God is utterly free to extend his mercy to whom he will, and he has chosen to be merciful to Israel. God passes by Moses and proclaims, and I love this next part in in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Make no mistake, this God is uncompromisingly just. By no means will he clear the guilty. He does not sweep sin under the carpet, but his leading revelation is his mercy and grace. The first attributes he ties to his very name are merciful and gracious, which shine as the apex of his glory. He's slow to anger, which concedes that he does indeed get angry, and justly so. It would be unloving to his own children if he did not get angry when they were threatened and assaulted. And yet even in such justice, God is slow to anger. Wrath is the righteous response to evil, but it's not his heart. Justice is the stem. Mercy is the flower. Our kids also need to know that their dad isn't just an administrator of justice, that he's more than just merely a disciplinarian. They long to regularly hear and see the revelation that they have a father gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They may not articulate Moses' specific request, but every day those young hearts yearn and ask, Daddy, please show me your glory. Our kids need to know that their dad isn't just an administrator of justice, that he's more than merely a disciplinarian. What our kids need to see of the glory, of our glory as fathers, as we put our goodness on display for them, is not only our unwillingness to compromise justice, but even more, our willingness to make personal sacrifices to show them mercy and grace. This is not a call for dads to do anything less than justice and discipline, but to do more. It's not a call for fatherly laxity. Don't confuse laxity with grace. In theology or in parenting, real grace is not lax. It is costly, genuinely costly. It costs the Son of God his earthly life. And it costs dad significant time and energy just when we feel like we have no more to give. Real grace doesn't sweep sin under the rug, but takes sin with utter seriousness and makes personal sacrifices to address it head on. And at times even bear its consequences on our children's behalf Grace doesn't concede, okay, you don't have to clean your room. Grace sacrifices its own time and energy and gets down on all fours and assists the child in cleaning their room and in that way training their child. Let's be these kind of dads. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for dads. And thank you for those who work alongside of dads or work without dads, the moms who have to stand in this place. 
And thank you for those, Lord, who don't have children, but are mentors, are leaders as fathers might be to their young protégés. Father, I pray by your grace that as we do this sinfully and strugglingly, that there would be glimpses of the glory of God shining through us so that we can be those who are good fathers. Thank you that you are the archetypal good, good father. And help us to cling to you. Be with our children. Forgive us our sins as we have trained them. And may they grow into godly, able, fully formed people. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.